Welcome back to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, another Onco Snacks edition. Today I'm joined as always by the legendary and the legendary. Got nothing else today, Michael. Dr. Michael Fernando, how are you? Josh, I never thought I'd see the day where you run out of superlatives, but I'm very good, thank you. I, I think it's called having a baby. But tell us, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about thrombophlebitis and superficial DVT, a subject that I believe the great Josh Hurwitz, the most loquacious of all oncologists, described as a pain in the ass. I don't know if we have to put an explicit rating on this episode now, but anyway. So It's at least a PG, right? PG-13. Don't listen to this if you're under 17. I don't know why any 17-year-olds would be. You've got much more exciting things to do. But superficial thrombophlebitis and superficial DVTs, I might just jump right into our little introduction here, Josh. Yeah, even saying superficial DVT is an annoying term. We don't use that a lot in Australia. So I think we could just keep it as like a superficial thrombophlebitis because that's, uh, you know, an interesting... That's a universal DVT, term. deep vein thrombosis. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, right? you can't really have a superficial deep vein thrombosis, can you? If you could see Josh right now, you would see a vein starting to pop out of his head. Anyway, so superficial... DVTs, yep, there it goes, and thrombophlebitis. It usually occurs in the lower limbs, particularly in the saphenous vein, which accounts for 60 to 80% of lower limb uh, thrombophlebitis. Uh, I believe that's the plural, proper plural term, or small slash short, short branches of the saphenous vein. It can occur on really any other site, and as anyone who's looked at an anatomy textbook will know, will know that there's lots of superficial blood vessels. And it can also be bilateral, which obviously represents a bit of a diagnostic dilemma. Diagnosis requires a little bit more than just a clinical assessment. So the oncological population, the population that anyone listening to this podcast, leaving aside all of the teenagers apparently, is intimately familiar with, their use of chemotherapy and anti-cancer agents obviously changes the game. So administration of chemotherapy can result in significant toxicities and complications, but at a baseline level, the majority of our treatments require the insertion of a cannula for intravenous admission, whether that's a small sort of disposable cannula or a, centrally, a central venous access device. There is a lot of possibility for venous irritation, leading to phlebitis and thrombophlebitis, both from the insertion itself and from the chemical effects of the drug. Even pick lines, which for those of you who don't know, are effectively cannulas that are very, very long and stretched from the cubital fossa all the way up through the subclavian vein and down into the um, superior vena cava. Even these can present with phlebitis um, superficial to where the devices are actually inserted. And obviously the effort to insert these devices can cause problems. They can also cause extensive superficial vein thrombosis and phlebitis due to the length of the catheter. And you, and I have seen patients present with really enormous amounts of thrombus because it's effectively tracked along the length of the catheter, which is a big, big problem. Although I'm making it sound very, very dire and very, very serious, but for the vast majority of of patients, phlebitis and superficial veins, which is due to peripheral venous catheters, are generally benign and self-limiting. Anyone who's ever put in a cannula 
as an intern, I know I have, will have seen uh, patients who have had so many cannulas that their veins are really heavily thrombosed, but obviously they're able to go along their lives without any significant issue. Josh, why don't you tell us, uh, amidst my uh, doom and gloom introduction there, for a patient who you think has thrombophlebitis, what else could it be? I'm still stuck on the idea of you cannulating, Michael. I find that just, I don't know, just I will have you know, I was, I was the cannula gun back in the day. <laughs> so when we're looking at differential diagnoses, if you've got someone who has an underlying malignancy of that area, I guess the things you need to think about, local tumor invasion, malignant lymphadenopathy, bone metastases, and superative infective thrombophlebitis. So the last one I mentioned is probably the most likely or even, I guess, concerning because, you know, things can get infected and there's extravasation risks and those sorts of things. So just always have that in the back of the mind when you're thinking about thrombophlebitis. Always think about, do I need to give someone some antibiotics to try and kind of cover maybe a staph infection? If you're looking for other causes, there's a heap of them. When, you know, hypercoagulable state, cancer, prolonged immobilization, in someone who's got cancer, vessel wall trauma. As you can see, there, these are all kind of in keeping with our theme. When you in the for the adjusted population, this risk is about five point four percent. But then when you look at patients who have cancer, it's it can be a lot higher as well. Other things to think about are inherited thrombophlebitis, so like protein C and S deficiency up to fifteen percent, and factor V laden mutation up to 40%. And although we, we're cancer specialists and cancer trainees, you will always have patients who have this. I've had patients with factor five latent deficiency and you kind of just have to manage that. Pregnancy, heart failure, respiratory failure, you know, uh, oncology is nothing but general medicine with a flavor of cancer. Mikey, what's the pathophysiology? I, I think, you know, if you're thinking of the magic school bus, and the medic school bus is going through that vessel, and there is a blockage. Why is it blocked? Oh, you're bringing up a reference near and dear to my heart. I love the magic school bus growing up as a kid. In terms of the pathophysiology, this has a couple of features. The first one is microscopic thrombosis. This can be caused by venous turbulence or stasis, vessel wall injury, or abnormal coagulability. This can lead to microthrombi that then propagate and form macroscopic thrombi, so thrombi that become clinically appreciable. A vascular endothelial injury reliably results in thrombus formation by triggering an inflammatory response that results in immediate platelet adhesion. Anyone who's been through med school will remember Virchow's triad or Virchow's triad. That's what's going on here. In terms of how this actually manifests, it's fairly elementary, as some public domain characters might say. Watson. Yeah, yes, elementary. Watson, thank you for completely ruining the joke there, Josh. Uh, So the most common symptoms are pain, swelling, redness, hardening and sclerosis of the vein, which can result in palpable venous thromboses of the upper extremity veins. At worst, these symptoms can last for months and impact the patient's quality of life and their ability to carry out their activities of daily living or ADLs. The rate of chemotherapy-induced phlebitis varies considerably based on the drug used, the duration of the infusion, and of course, based on innumerable patient factors. Josh, there is a clinical predictive score that I think both of us have learned in researching for this episode. Can you give our fine listeners a sense of how to accurately 
predict the risk of a thrombophlebitis because as everyone knows, we do love a risk score on this podcast. We do. The, the best risk score to actually use to diagnose thrombophlebitis would be an ultrasound. But if you are trying to negotiate to get an ultrasound or again explain to a patient why they have developed uh, a predicted score and so it was developed uh, in the derivative cohort of about 140 patients uh, and two validation cohorts after that and the four areas they looked at is one the presence of a catheter or access device in the subclanian or jugular vein or permanent pacemaker again that's probably not going to really work if you've got a cubital fossa one, but you could probably still use that if you've got unilateral pitting edema, presence of localized pain in that extremity, and another diagnosis that's at least as plausible. So a low probability with zero points would give you 13% chance of having a superficial thrombophlebitis, a medium risk up to 38% with one point, and a high probability up to 74%. But ultimately, have I ever used this risk score? No, I haven't. I think clinical is probably what you have to go off because I don't think you can justify and say I'm not going to do an ultrasound if someone's getting chemo and has had a cannula and you're worried that this might be an extensive superficial thrombophlebitis and might turn into a DVT or even have a deep vein thrombosis component to that. The next part of the question is how how do you diagnose and I think the best way to do it is to do a duplex ultrasound. It has sensitivity and specificity between 80 and 100% and a low false positive rate. The nice thing is there's no ionizing radiation. There's no contrast dye exposure. It's easy to perform and you just, you know, your patients won't, won't be upset by it. Some of the research Michael and I have done for this episode did suggest a deep dimer, but I'll put it to Michael. Why, why would you be less inclined to do a deep dimer in someone who's getting treatment for cancer? Well, Josh, as I say to our colleagues in the emergency department who are much less familiar with uh, the D-dimer and its implications with cancer, D-dimers are completely pointless in our line of work. And the reason for that is that they are inevitably elevated in patients not just with thrombus but with inflammation. Same reason that they're elevated in patients with pneumonia as a differential for PE. So never, ever... I say never, never, but never order a D-dimer in a patient with known cancer because even if it's elevated, it's not going to do what it's supposed to do, which is try and identify the patients who don't need to proceed to imaging. So regardless of what the D-dimer result is, you're always going to proceed to imaging. So you may as well just proceed to imaging. And save some money. Yeah, that's it. And the other imaging options you can do include an MR venography, it avoids radiation exposure because it's magnetic resonance, right? And some studies have shown sensitivities of about 71% and specificity of 89%. It's expensive. It has limited effectiveness. You still go back to the start of this cascade of options and do a duplex ultrasound. Also, good luck uh, convincing a radiologist to order an MRI for your superficial thrombophlebitis. Yes, it'd be an interesting conversation. Then you've got catheter-based contrast venography. This is indicated if there's clinical suspicion of an upper extremity DVT and ultrasound is negative or non-diagnostic. So IV contrast is injected into the lumen of the catheter and the fluoroscopy and may readily demonstrate the presence of the thrombus at the tip of the catheter. And you'd probably be speaking to your interventional counterparts or your radiation, uh, your radiology team in respect to that. 
And now we get to the juicy part, which is the treatment, because there's not a lot of consensus. I think that's that's the reality and that's the the cliff notes of the treatment. But Michael, did you want to kind of start telling us how to treat superficial thrombophlebitis? Absolutely, and I'll do it quickly because I think we're already coming up to our allotted time. So the aims of treatment of superficial thrombophlebitis are to alleviate symptoms, minimise the risk of embolization, and provide continued intravenous access. For patients with cancer, obviously intravenous access is an ongoing requirement because you can't afford for their treatment to be interrupted for any degree of time. So for superficial vein thrombosis and phlebitis, there is limited data to guide management in the upper extremities. I think that's uh, broadly similar with deep vein thrombosis as well. And complications, specifically PEs from superficial thrombophlebitis and vein thrombosis are very, very rare. So you're really looking for symptoms. You discontinue any IV infusions that might be running and you remove the peripheral catheter if that is a cause. You elevate the extremity. You can try either warm or cool compressors and oral or topical uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories may help with local sensation. Anticoagulation is mainly limited to uh, superficial thrombophlebitis of the lower limb. There is exploratory data regarding the role of anticoagulation for lower extremity superficial thrombophlebitis, but it is also reasonable to consider those with upper extremity SVT who are at risk of DVTs. Mikey, I think this area is actually quite a bit confusing because most of the study is on lower limb, right? And so there hasn't been large dedicated studies on upper limb. As I don't know what your practice is at your site, but ours is if it's a very large superficial thrombophobitis or if it's causing a heap of pain, then we would generally give some anticoagulation for between four and six weeks. When they look at lower limb superficial thrombophobitis, they kind of have a couple of rules, but essentially these rules are if they're large, if they're very close to, you know, a deep vein as another sort of thing, and they kind of stratify it by that. Some people will do serial ultrasounds to see if it's going. Generally, I, I don't really see that as a need if you're already on anticoagulation, but again, it's going to be a risk versus benefit in patients if they've got any bleeding diatheses or things that might increase their risk. But the other thing you can always do is actually have a chat to, you know, your vascular team if you're worried or even the hematology team, which might be able to give you some guidance. Because I think a lot of the time, having worked in a number of sites, it can also be location and site dependent. Absolutely. Uh, Places that I've worked, um, hematology were always happy to be consulted on whether these needed um, anticoagulation. As you say, the length the length the size of the thrombus as well as its proximity to the deep vein as mentioned before the biggest goal with anticoagulation of these superficial thromboses is prevention of development into something more serious i.e a dvt and from there a pe so the proximity to deep venous systems is something that's also taken into account so specifically SVTs in the lower extremity that are at least five centimetres in length, SVTs that are proximal to the knee, especially within 10 centimetres of the saphenofemoral junction, 
are considered high risk. And these are the patients that you may consider anticoagulating. Patients who have basilic or cephalic vein thromboses, this is the upper limb, who remain symptomatic such uh, with symptoms such as edema or pain, despite the removal of any causative catheters, may also be considered for anticoagulation treatment. But this is really to manage symptoms. And so that summarizes our brief foray into the hematological world of superficial vein thromboses. Next time on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, Onco Snacks, we will be looking at the most feared of immune-mediated adverse events. It's one that I've only seen once in my career, but that is the potentially deadly immune-mediated myocarditis. So join us next time because it's going to be a good one. We'll see you then. See you then. Thank you.